know, in the Gospel of John, chapter 7 is a very pivotal chapter. Uh, there's 21 chapters in the book of John and, and the first six, you know, kind of cover parts of Jesus ministry beginning in chapter seven really begins the last few days of Jesus life. Uh, Jesus goes up to the feast of the tabernacle tabernacles. We'll talk about that in a minute. He confronts the Pharisees. He heals the blind man and then he heals, raises Lazarus from the dead. And all of a sudden everything is put into motion uh, concerning his uh, trial and his death and then, you know, of course, eventually his resurrection. But I wanted us tonight to take a minute and look at some things out of John, the seventh chapter, as we think about that this morning. Uh, Jesus is in Galilee, which is up north, and it's about time for the Feast of the Tabernacles, like I mentioned. And so his brothers come to him. And so in the first five verses of John chapter 7, it says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews were wanting to take his life. Now, one of the... I'll just interrupt here, kind of like Ronald on the song. uh, Just, you know. uh, One of the big themes in the Gospel of John is timing. And Jesus talking about he's going to do things on his own timetable. Now... Because we might think, well, what's the problem, Jesus? They're trying to take your life. Isn't that what you came here for? Uh, Isn't that the whole end game of this whole ministry? So what difference does it make that they're trying to take your life? Well, again, it has to do with the idea of Jesus doing things on his own timetable, not on other people's. And so it says that he was staying in Judea, excuse me, in Galilee, not going to Judea to Jerusalem because of what was going on. In verse 2, but when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one wants to become a public figure, acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now, if we just stopped at verse 4 and didn't read verse 5, so quit cheating if you went ahead and read verse 5. If we stopped at verse 4, it would seem like his brothers have a legitimate public relations argument. Why are you up here in Galilee when it's the Feast of the Tabernacles down in Jerusalem? All the people are going to be there. That's where you could get the biggest crowd. That's where you could make the most impact. You know, you do a little miracle up here in Galilee and nobody's going to see it. It's really not going to make much noise. But you go down to Jerusalem and you do a miracle. And boy, everybody's going to take notice. This would be something big for you. You ought to go to Jerusalem so that you could, you know, build your profile. But that's not what they meant. They were being very sarcastic. As my dad would say, they were being very facetious. I don't even know what that word means. I couldn't even spell it if I had to. But that's what my dad would say. Very sarcastic, tongue in cheek. Because now look at verse 5. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. You see, they weren't really trying to help him with his PR problem. They weren't really trying to help him raise his status or or to get people to believe in him. They just kind of wanted to make fun of him a little bit. They wanted to harass him a little bit. Maybe they knew, I don't know, I don't want to read too much into it. But maybe they knew what was brewing in Jerusalem. And maybe they'd had about enough of him. 
And if he, they could convince him to go to Jerusalem and he gets killed, you know, then that'd be just kind of fine with them. Because they didn't believe in him. Now, what's interesting here is, gee, we're not going to read it, but Jesus goes on basically to say, no, I'm not going to go. And so then his brothers go, and halfway through, or a couple days later, Jesus does go. And we think to ourselves, now, wait a minute. You said you weren't going to go when it was your brother's idea, but now that it's your own idea, you kind of go. Have you ever done that before? Husbands, your wives would probably say that you do this. At least my wife would say that I do it. If she suggests something, I'm probably not going to be for it. But if she can convince me that it was my idea, then I'm all for it. Well, I don't think that's what's going on here with Jesus. I don't think Jesus is playing any games. But this is the second time in John that something like this has happened. You remember in Cana of Galilee, the very first miracle, that Jesus and his disciples are at this wedding. And his mother is there. And, and by how everything is said, I think his mother maybe was, was one of the sponsors of this wedding. What are we, a hostess, that's what we call it. You ladies that have showers and things like that. Because she comes to Jesus upset because the wine has run out. And Jesus says... What do you want me to do about it? It's not my time. And then like most mothers, she just ignored what Jesus said. Told the servant standing there, do whatever he tells you to do. And then Jesus does take care of the situation. Now, I don't understand all that's going on there. But again, it has to do with his timing. And again, this feast of the tabernacle going has to do with his timing. So Jesus does go on down to the feast of the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And about halfway through the feast, it was a week-long day. About halfway through the feast, Jesus goes up to the temple and starts teaching and preaching. And he is immediately confronted by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and, 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 and the ones that were, you know, in the know. And they just had had enough of him. But the people, on the other hand, the people were eating it up. The people were listening to what Jesus was saying. The people were intrigued by what he had to say. And we see some of the reactions here from the people at this feast. And we're going to compare it a little bit to asking ourselves, do we have knowledge or do we have faith? Or are those two things the same? And what we're going to find out is, no, they're not the same. And so the first point I wanted to make that we see from this, well, the crowd is divided. First of all, in verse 12, some of them are arguing. Some of them say, well, he's a good man. I don't know much about him. I don't know anything else, but, but he's, he's a good man. And others of them say, no, no, he's a deceiver. Well, I got to vote with the second people. Okay. If I'm going to vote one way or the other, I'm voting with the second people. There is no way that Jesus was just a good man. Because if he was just a good man, he was a liar. Because Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Remember all the way, well, it's going to be here in a little bit in chapter 8. Jesus is going to basically say, before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. Jesus is claiming to be God. 
So he can't be a good man. He can be a good man plus. He can be more than a good man, but he can't be just a good man. Because if he's just a good man, then he's a liar, which makes him not a good man. You see where I'm going with that? It was a roundabout way to get there, but you see what I'm saying? So some of them said he's a good man. Some of them said he's a deceiver. A little later on, some of them said he's a prophet. Some of them said he was the Christ. They were all confused about him. They didn't know what to, what to do with him, really. And so we're going to look a little bit tonight about what faith isn't necessarily. And first of all, knowing about Jesus is not faith. Knowing about Jesus is the start of the process. In fact, the entire gospel of John, John tells us at the end, kind of like on Sunday mornings in 1 John, he tells us at the end kind of right why he wrote it. In the gospel of John, he tells us at the end why he wrote the gospel, so that people would believe in Jesus Christ. That's the whole, that's the whole point of John writing this gospel, was sharing with the people what he had seen, what he had heard, trying to convince them that Jesus was who he claimed to be and who John claimed Jesus to be. And so knowledge is important, but knowledge is not the end. Just knowing facts about Jesus is not enough. We've got to move beyond there for it to become faith. You remember the man Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3 at night. And he basically says, we know you're from God. Uh, But Nicodemus wasn't ready to claim Jesus as Christ yet. He wasn't ready to claim him as Savior. He wasn't ready to go all in, as it were, on Jesus. He had the knowledge. He even had belief to a point. But he didn't yet have faith. You see... The ones who probably should have, and certainly did for much of his life, know Jesus the best. Knew everything about him. Knew all his family history. Knew what he acted like when he was a kid. Knew what grades he made in algebra. Knew what, you know, all those things. The people who knew him, knew the facts, the best about him, didn't believe in him. That was the brothers. They'd been raised with him. They'd known him his whole life. Their whole lives. They knew everything. And yet there was no faith. In fact, there wasn't even any belief there. So just having knowledge is not faith. Many in the crowds knew Jesus. Many had been waiting for him to show up. They too did not believe, many of them. For these people, their knowledge did not transfer to faith. If you skipped back a chapter, in chapter 6, one of the most remarkable chapters, I think, in in all of the Bible, and especially in the Gospel of John, at the beginning of chapter 6, the crowds are coming around Jesus, and they are trying to make him king by force. We believe in you. We we think you're the Messiah. We think you're the chosen one. We're going to make you king. And by the end of the chapter, nearly the entire crowd had deserted Jesus. They knew some things about him, but when Jesus started to get into some things that were a little deep, a little hard for them to understand or comprehend, things that went to them maybe having to make some changes in their own lives, they wanted no part of that. And so they left. 
So just having a knowledge about Jesus is not the same as faith. There's a danger for us as well. Most of us in here know a lot about Jesus. We studied the scriptures our whole lives. We've been taught since we were, you know, in the little chairs with our feet dangling out. That God is so big. That Jesus loves me, this I know. And we've studied the scriptures and we we know all of that. But just because we know all of that. Doesn't mean we have real faith. Doesn't mean that that faith has been translated into our lives as it needs to be. So we must move beyond just a knowledge of Jesus. It's got to go beyond that. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Knowing and having faith are not the same thing. Our knowledge must then be used as a stepping stone to grow and strengthen our faith. Secondly, knowing others who know Jesus is not faith. Another lesson we learned from these encounters is that our faith cannot be based on somebody else's knowledge or their faith for that matter. Many of us, for, for many of us, our faith is a heritage. How many of you were raised in Christian homes? The majority. Okay? The majority. Now there's a few that weren't. For those of us who were raised in Christian homes, our faith began as our parents' faith. Or perhaps our grandparents or whoever it was that took us to church and and brought us here and saw that, 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 that we were here. Our faith began as their faith. And that's okay. That is a good place to start. I would not want my children or my grandchildren to start anywhere else. I would not want them to start from a place where they have no upbringing, no foundation, no tradition, no heritage of faith. As parents, that is our responsibility to pass our faith along to them. But at some point, my faith has to become my faith. It can't be my parents' faith. It can't be my grandparents' faith. It can't even be the church's faith. It's got to be my own. I have to make it personal in my life. Many in the crowds knew Jesus by hearsay, by secondhand knowledge. And that's a place to start. And you know, again, John, that's the point of John's gospel, isn't it? I am writing so that you can believe. I'm writing these things so that you will listen to me. That's the point of evangelism, isn't it? We go out and we share our faith with others. And that is a beginning place for them. But for faith to become real faith, it has to become individual. Our faith cannot be something treated like an heirloom that is handed down generationally. It's not passed on by osmosis from a friend. It's not a gene. We don't pass a Christian gene on to our children. Well, I'm a Christian, so they're a Christian. No, it doesn't work that way. It's got to be their faith and our individual faith. Each one of us must allow our faith in God to grow. So just knowing others who know Jesus, that's not faith. Now, I want to make sure you're with me, right? 
when I, when, when I said that knowing about Jesus is not faith, I'm not saying you don't need to know about Jesus, right? You, you got to know about Jesus, but it's got to go further than that. And just knowing others that know about Jesus isn't faith. That doesn't mean that you don't need to know others who know Jesus. That's how we get our faith and it begins to grow. Okay. All right. I just, you know, every now and then I think you, you, you can go a little overboard and just want to make sure we get the ship back in the, you know, whatever. Okay. Thirdly, and this one's a little tricky. Knowing Jesus is the Christ is not faith. Ooh, wait a minute. You were with me on one and two, weren't you? Some of you are not so with me now. But you see, that's what's going on here. Even the demons believe and tremble, James tells us. We see Nicodemus again at the end of this chapter, in verse 40, beginning in verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back. The, 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 the religious leaders sent the guards out to arrest Jesus. But when they went out, the guards, they are amazed by what's going on. I mean, they are listening to Jesus and they seem to be pretty impressed with what he's saying. And the people are pretty impressed with what Jesus is saying. And the guards are like, you know what? <laughs> if, if we arrest him, they're liable to... Beat us up. They're liable to form a mob. So they come back empty handed. So verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked him, why didn't you bring him in here? Wait, we sent you to get that Jesus. Here you come back. Where is he? No one ever spoke the way this man does. The guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. And then we have our second encounter in the Gospel of John with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. This is, I think, Nicodemus trying to come to Jesus' defense. But a little backwards. You know, back in, not, not wanting to do it openly. But from what we learned about Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And what we see from Nicodemus in John chapter 7, I believe that he believes. I believe that Nicodemus believes Jesus is who he claimed to be. And yet, that still has not translated into faith. It is still not translated into action. I believe he knows in his heart That Jesus is who he claims to be. Many seem to be inclined to believe that Jesus was the Christ. Some of them said he was the prophet of the Messiah. Yet their beliefs stopped short of actual faith. And you know that may be. that, That it's a danger that that could be where some of us are. As well. That we know. We've read. We've studied. 
And we may even, we believe, we believe that Jesus is the son of God. We believe that Jesus is the Christ. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But does that affect our lives in any way? Does that change us in any way? You see, it didn't change Nicodemus much. It didn't change some of the others who believed. It even said later on that there were some who believed, but they were afraid because of the Pharisees. So it was not translated again into faith. That may be where some of, we, some of us might be. So where does this leave us? And that leaves us with our fourth point. Accepting Jesus as Christ is faith. Now notice the difference in the words. Knowing and accepting are two different things. Means two different things in our lives. I know it's not in the Bible, but we hear it all the time in religious, you know, out in the religious world, the term, you know, accepting Jesus as your personal savior. You know, it's not in there, but there's a sense in which that has to be true. That each one of us has to accept Jesus as our savior. You remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and he's preaching to the crowd And he essentially tells them, you killed the son of God. And at that point, I think they believed. And Paul, excuse me, Paul, Peter says to them, now let all Israel be assured of this. The same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And we've talked about this before. You can't have one without the other. You see, a lot of us, we want Jesus to be our Christ. We want Jesus to be our savior. We want Jesus to be our our atoning sacrifice. We want Jesus to do those things for us. But we don't really want him to be Lord in our lives. I don't know if in America it has to do with, you know, coming out of the, you know, the English hierarchy and all that kind of stuff, you know. But, you know, we don't, we, we in America especially, we don't like to think that anybody's over us. I'm my own man. You know, I can do it. I'm, I'm free. Really? Okay. You know, I can do whatever I want to do. No, you can't. You can't even drive without a seatbelt if you want to. Well, you can, I guess, but you can, you know, get a ticket uh, for it. You know. And so we don't like the idea of somebody being Lord over us. You know, there was an idea that, you know, even after after the American Revolution, you know, what kind of government were we going to have? What 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 are we going to call this person that we put in? And there were some who who wanted to go right back to where we'd come from. We need a king. No, no, no. Why would we do that to ourselves? We just got out of that. We don't want that again. And so the idea that somebody or something, somebody would be Lord over us is not something that we like. The greatest commandment says that we got to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, and our strength and mind. Accepting Jesus is a matter of the heart, not just the mind. Believing that Jesus is the Christ may be a matter of the mind. But accepting Jesus as Lord 
is a matter of the heart. And what we need to ask ourselves is, is our, is our heart and our actions testifying like our head and our mouths? Well, Jesus, you know, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is, is, you know, my, my personal savior. Jesus is this. Jesus is that. And then we go out and we live our lives as if he had nothing to do with our lives. Kind of like John eventually talks about in first John in his letter. You can't have one without the other. You can't have the Christ without the Lord as well. It means that I am allowing him to rule in my life. That I'm allowing him to have dominion in my life. That he rules over every aspect. He rules over how I treat people. He rules over what comes out of my mouth. And how I talk. He rules over how I act on a date. He rules over how I run my business. He rules over my family. He rules over every aspect of my life. How I spend my time and my money and my talents. It means allowing his spirit and his will to dominate in all that I do. And that is what true faith is. We can have all the knowledge in the world. But if we don't allow it to affect us, then it's not real faith. I've used this example, you know, before and, I, you know, I apologize, but it's close to home to me. Some of you will know that I am diabetic. And I have high cholesterol. And high triglycerides. And a little high blood pressure, too. I know, I know that if I would follow my doctor's plan and I would eat what my doctor recommends, I know I would be healthier. Beyond knowing. I believe it wholeheartedly. I, I believe that if I'd cut down on sweets and if I'd cut down on fried foods and if I'd, you know, eat more of that green stuff, what's it called? Vegetables, yeah. If I'd eat, you know, more of that stuff, you know, I'd be healthier. I know it and I believe it. But I don't have any faith in it. How do I know I don't have any faith in it? Because I don't do it. Because I eat the sweets and I eat the fried foods and I don't eat the green stuff. You see, it's not just about knowing. And it's not even just about believing. It's about taking what we know and we believe and letting it make a difference in our lives. Jesus meets this great crowd of people. Many who knew about him. Many who believed in him. But many who never put their faith in him. We want to make sure that our faith is something. Well, if we have faith, it will transform our lives. It will make a difference. If there's some way we can help or encourage you this evening, we invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing.
We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas. 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.